Good day, everyone, and welcome to the program. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Tom Wallen. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you. Um and welcome to our June virtual roundtable here at Energy Intelligence. Uh, my name is Tom Wallen. I'm the editor-in-chief here. And uh, today we're going to have a debate on the outlook for oil prices. Um, and just before we begin, I'd just like to comment that, you know, debate and argument are a big part of our journalistic process here at Energy Intelligence. We're always... Uh, discussing the issues, and this is part of what makes us uh, sharper in our thinking and challenges our thinking, and we think that's a really central part of what we do or what, what our process is. And uh, so today I think we'd, what, what I hope to do here is uh, uh, sort of give um, our audience a, a view of the kind of internal debate that goes on uh, here among our, our oil markets team. Um, and uh, representing the bears for us today in this bear versus bull debate, uh, we have David Knapp, who's the editor of Oil Market Intelligence and also our chief energy economist. And representing the bulls, we have John Van Shake, who's the team leader for oil markets and the New York bureau chief. So uh, to begin, uh, David, I'd like to go to you first and uh, ask really, uh, you know, about this um, almost near doubling of oil prices since the lows of January. Um, why do you think this has happened, and what do you think the most important causal factors are? Uh, thanks, Tom. And uh, certainly John and I, for the last 15 years, have been uh, arguing vehemently about almost everything. Uh, sometimes he's right, mostly I'm right, but um, I think he'd say it the other way around. Um, obviously, there's been a combination of events um, and some very real changes in attitude and anticipations about uh, where the oil market is going, uh, some of which have, are supported with a lot of evidence, some of which are less, and I think that's probably the main difference between uh, the bull and the bear opinions. Um, obviously, the wildfires in Canada were, were a major stimulus recently. Uh, those, uh, that production is coming back because nothing was damaged. Uh, whether the market can digest the new oil when it comes back will be a, a good first test for the bull side of the case. Uh, but also on the financial side, which really matters, that there's a whole history of having oversold and overbought markets. And at some point, things were going to turn around just for that reason. John, do you yeah. want to give your side of this? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, $50 is, is all about expectations. Uh, $30 is a crazy low price that would kill a lot of companies over time. So it's an, that's an unsustainable price. And when it hit 30 you know, how did we get to 50 When we hit 30 we got the free stocks going between OPEC and non-OPEC, and that kind of helped us out of that trough. And, uh, and, and as that was going on, and although it didn't lead to anything, we then saw a kind of a realization that the rebalancing process was underway and that it started kicking in. Um, that was then strengthened by the supply outages, um, <clears throat> and, th and that really helped uh, the rally kind of 
of gain some momentum. Uh, additionally, we then saw fear creeping in that over time we might, because of the CapEx cuts, we might not have enough oil <clears throat> and that $40, $50 was not a bad price. And then <clears throat> lately the Saudis came out and said, you know what, $50, uh, $50 is a low price and that's not high enough to, to um, uh, attract sufficient investments. So <clears throat> 50 is about expectations, it's about sentiment. Uh, it's good to remember we went up to 50 in Contango, like we did uh, a decade ago. We went from 45 to 70 in Contango. So that means, yes, we do have enough oil today, but there is a fear that we are running short tomorrow. So it, that's good to remember. There's plenty, enough, uh, plenty of oil today. David, what do you think of this point about uh, expectations driving this? Um, very real, and uh, but anticipation about what the world is going to look like in uh, 10 or 15 or five years even um, is uh, takes some leaps of, uh, of faith. And certainly when you have uh, key players in the market that we're still trying to figure out uh, what their approach to the oil market is going to be. Uh, in fact, uh, and I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, um, and in fact, I think they're trying to figure out what their approach is going to be. So a lot of that puts things in, in the cocked hat. Uh, financial forces, I would like to just make the point that uh, they are very strong. The financial market is much bigger than the physical market, but they have tended to reinforce moves rather than cause them. Uh, so the financial um, forces can work for a while, uh, but then all of a sudden they stop working and the piling on on the other side uh, from overbought positions will uh, will take the market down fairly <laughs> promptly. The problem is that this volatility makes it very difficult on both the supply and demand side of the market to make uh, critical decisions about planning. So, um, you know, obviously future oil fields is part of that planning um, and companies try to maintain a middle of the road level, but when they're staring at 30, they have a different view than when they're expecting 60. John, how, how important do you think these financial forces are in driving the price recovery? Well, they're crucial because they, they reflect all these expectations in, in the market. Uh, you know, the crazy low price, the freeze, the balancing talks, uh, the Saudi expectations, the outages, all, all that kind of comes together <clears throat> in, in the futures uh, market. Uh, and it's, it's also good to remember that this whole price rally started as a short covering rally. Uh, you know, we were massively short. Um, all these shorts with prices dropping below 30 uh, uh, were covered. So players bought back their futures, started, you know, the, the change in, in, in the price. Um, and, and as that was going on, more longs were put on. Um, if, if you look at the numbers, they're quite stunning. Uh, you know, from mid-January, we've seen Brent net uh, closing uh, uh, the shorts closing 110,000 positions, uh, and the longs adding only 70,000. So uh, in all, roughly 200,000 uh, contracts switched, and now Brent is net long 400,000 contracts. And TI basically followed the same pattern, but a little bit with a delay. The shorts came out slower, uh, but yet the same, the same pattern. Um, uh, and, and as a result, the, uh, the, the net uh, uh, longs in, in, brand, in, in TI are now 250,000 contracts. So, yes, I agree with David. So we have, we have a, a huge net long position, but with 50 showing quite a bit of, of solidity, 
you know, the question is, are they coming, going to come out? Well, I doubt it. Do you want to comment further on that, David? Well, one thing that I think we need to keep in mind, and it was brought to light at the last Oil & Money very, uh, very strongly um, by, uh, by Jeff Curry, um, that the thing the financial part of the oil market has done is connected this market to a whole lot of other stuff, and particularly the overall commodity cycle and a lot of the macroeconomic situation, um, not just related to oil demand, but related to, uh, uh, to the financial side, to people's holdings and stuff. And so we have to keep alert to that. And some of the optimism may be um, a less bad view of, uh, of commodity markets in general. We're seeing a little bit of that. And that's another place where the financial markets work. But, you know, the way you make money uh, is by knowing what the other guy is going to do. So there's this herd stink. Uh, herd instinct going on. I've often said that it's very dangerous being s smarter than the market. It can cost you a lot of money. Uh, you just have to get first in line and know where the other guys are going with it. So uh, that's what causes the overbought and oversold positions. Okay, well, thanks. Let's turn to another aspect of this whole picture. Um, how much are supply disruptions impacting the current balance, and how do you see the future outlook for supply? David, do you want to go with that first? Uh, sure. Um, there's a bit of each in this, that obviously the, the disruption in Canada was by far the biggest, uh, over 1.3 million barrels a day uh, on a daily basis in the second week of, uh, of May. Um, and then for the month, it, it took out uh, about 800,000 barrels a day, maybe a little bit more. Uh, it's also coming back somewhat more slowly than uh, uh, what we may have thought. And so there are some residual uh, some hangover effects on this uh, related to the uh, the labor market. I mean, these people, some of them had their houses burned down. It's been very difficult to get uh, things restarted in a way uh, that would put them back uh, within the next week or two to uh, pre-fire levels. The other thing going on with that is that the conditions uh, for wildfires uh, in Western Canada and indeed in the Western U.S. are still uh, very dangerous, so there could be more wildfires. Uh, the other big part of it is Nigeria. And Nigeria, um, I think, is more of a chronic situation, that the, uh, the Niger Delta Avengers uh, seem to have an inside track on knowing how to defeat the security, and they know where the real pressure points are in terms of blowing up uh, key um, infrastructure associated with pipelines and ports. Um, and they're not done yet. So that could, could continue. And the one that I'm most worried about is one that really hasn't happened very visibly, and that's Venezuela. So there's a lot of downside on that. So the outages aren't over, but they may be certainly less because of wildfires ending. Yeah. Um, what do you uh, think? <clears throat> well, you know, disruptions, supply disruptions now have a huge impact. Um, and, and the reason is simple, because we're running a, a thinner surplus, or we're, we're even close to balancing. And that means that if there, if there is an outage, uh, you're going to take oil out of tanks. Um, and it's not that you're, you know, eating in, into your two million barrel a day surplus. Uh, you're, you're going to, uh, to 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 balance the market I even faster. Um, and you know, these outages, uh, you can argue, are tipping the scale, and that's what you're seeing. And because you're close to balance, fears like Venezuela. Uh, Nigeria, the, Canada, the Canadian outages have a much bigger impact uh, 
than when you are in a situation of, of a huge market surplus. And we haven't even started uh, the, the hurricane season in the U.S., which is promising to be huge as well. So there's a, there's a lot of potential outages that, that can really tip the scale. Well, I spent a number of years uh, very carefully trying to predict how the hurricane season might disrupt oil and gas supplies uh, for the last 20 years. And for about the last 10 years, it's been completely wasted effort. Uh, so I decided I wasn't going to do it this year, even after NOAA came out with their conditions report and was waiting for EIA to come out with theirs. So this is probably the year it is going to happen <laughs> if I'm not uh, paying a lot of attention to it. But what, what John said about uh, the inventories, yeah, they came down. They came down in a very visible place in the U.S., and, and purely because of the lack of Canadian oil coming in and inability to replace it. Um, and that part of it, I think that oil comes back in unless there's a big change in refinery runs. Uh, you know, people are looking for a good gasoline season, and but export markets aren't quite as good as they had been. So um, that stuff is going to build back up in inventories. And if you look globally, the inventory situation is still a very, very large overhang. Uh, we don't hit our billion by the end of this month as we had thought it might, uh, but it could easily happen in uh, – um, in uh, August or September because we still see, uh, in terms of our OMI supply and demand numbers, we're still, still seeing builds of between one and a half and two, or extra oil of one and a half to two. So the, the inventories are, are a threat, um, and drawing them down a little bit uh, doesn't really help a whole lot. Uh, the problem is going to be when the forward price curve flattens enough that the economics really go away. They're already getting somewhat threatened, uh, and then you will have a rush of oil out. It'd be tough to get uh, a reasonable amount of oil out in uh, in a quiet way that did it, that it like it did in 1999. John, do you want to respond to what yeah, uh, you know, about inventory? In inventories are are obviously key, and 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 they're a worry. Um, uh, in, in part because uh, we don't really know how, how these inventories will come out. Fits and spurts, probably uh, they will keep the market in contango, um, and at, at times it will be quite visible. Um, but you can also make a good point for saying that it will be kind of a stealth process. I mean, if you look at, at product inventories, for example, over the past four years in the, in the same OMI that, that David is editing, We've seen, over the past four months, we've seen global product stocks come down 60 million barrels. We've seen the Saudis take out 30 million barrels of crude. You know, those are things that only become visible after the fact. So, yes, we worry about, about inventories, but the, the point is, the moment you see inventories come down, you also start worrying about how much is there actually and how much is, how much is left. And is there enough left before new supply kicks in? So starting drawing inventories by itself is, is a key factor on the pinning, on the pinning a price. Uh, so that's, that's a factor I think that the, the bears are, are completely ignoring in, well, in, in this whole debate. Is John uh, for sure it will add to price volatility. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. And, and it's, it's a very unknown and, and volatile process. Uh, but it won't take you all the way down. As John said initially, which I totally support, that sentiment is a huge part of this. But remember that sentiment has this habit of being half full, half empty glasses a lot. 
And so you hear this stuff about, oh, uh, the Saudis are producing a lot, and if you're in a, a bearish market, they go good. Uh, if you're in a, a market that wants to turn bullish, it goes, oh, but look at the spare capacity is going down. So you kind of want to have it both ways, and you, you make your choice depending on which side of the market you're on. Um, inventories, uh, um, I think, are, are going to remain high, um, and I, you know, until you have the rebalancing put you on the negative side, uh, some see that happening in the third quarter. We don't. Some here see it continuing and getting worse in the fourth quarter. Um, our big uh, uh, dump in, uh, in inventories or the, the big deficits don't happen until towards the end of the decade. And we might talk about that in a minute because I think there's a pretty easy out for the market on that, and I think it's consistent with some of the background thinking that, uh, that I've been worrying a lot about. That is, what is the Saudi Arabia position? Well, let's, let's talk a little bit, you know, before we sort of get on to the, you know, some of these other aspects, what about just about the outlook for demand? I mean, we've got certainly some, you know, significant uh, or people worrying about significant economic headwinds. You know, we've got, you know, potentially Brexit. We've got, you know, people, down, you know, adjusting downward their uh, uh, GDP forecasts for growth uh, in emerging markets, these kind of things. Um, how do you guys see the the demand outlook? Uh, I'm I'm quite bullish on demand, certainly in the in the short and medium term, uh, because there's simply no replacement yet for for hydrocarbons. Um, lower prices are triggering more demand. We see it in the U.S. We see it in the in the non-OECD. Uh, many people get lifted out of uh, into into the the middle class. They buy cars. They they heat their homes. Um, that will keep oil demand rising. Um, and uh, so for, for the next five years, four years, I'm not worried about, about growth and demand. million barrels a day, minimum. Uh, more than five years out, that's a different story. I mean, you know, and this is all with the caveats that there's so many moving parts uh, and, and there's so many wild cards out there on the economic side, on the, uh, on the equity side. Obviously, uh, that can all change the picture. China can collapse. Uh, we can uh, have new policies in the U.S. That, that take a very different turn of what we used to. All these things are possible, but, uh, you know, Citrus Paribus, we, will, we would probably see a very healthy demand growth of a million barrels a day going forward. And, and this year you see stronger, um, weaker? <clears throat> one, uh, we are at 1.3 at the moment, 1.3 million barrels a day for, for the year. Uh, this, this follows the, the 1.75, 1.8 from, from 2015. Lower prices are still having uh, having an impact, and uh, you see it you see it in India, you see it in in China, you see it in the U.S. Uh, and they're the, the, what we used to call the smaller tigers in Asia. They're picking up, uh, and <clears throat> um, again, you know, if if you if you have a middle class that that gets sufficient income, they they would like to get some pleasures in life, and 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 oil plays a big role in that. What's your perspective, David? Pleasure is good. But um, I, I'm more worried about the uh, income elasticity than the price elasticity. Uh, it's always been more important. Um, and when I look at China, I think the Chinese economy, uh, and this used to be absolutely the main driver for uh, non-OECD uh, non and, in fact, global uh, uh, oil demand growth was all about China. Um, I call it the Saudi Arabia of the demand side. And it has certainly let its, uh, let its foot off 
off the off the gas pedal. Um, luckily for uh, the demand bulls uh, that India uh, ha- had picked up, uh, and now India is looking like maybe it's not growing so fast. And underneath all of this, you have an OECD, which I think is uh, um, is sort of in the terminal phase of, of oil demand. And you throw Paris on top of that, we kind of forget. We look at all the supply impacts of a lot of the things going on with uh, environmentalism and the climate change uh, uh, concerns, but it affects the demand side too. It affects the the fuel choice, which takes away from oil demand. So um, we'll see how that plays. But certainly when I look five years out, I see something of a different world with uh, demand may make it to 100, but uh, that would be a, a bit of a surprise to me. So I'm I'm a bear also on uh, on where oil demand growth is going. Yeah, what what the what the bears forget is that you know oil demand is not just refined products demand. It's it's also uh, overall demand for crude oil. And you see China and India building up their strategic petroleum reserves because they want to have security of supply in the future. Um, and because you are talking about demand growth in the non-OECD, they need to build a lot of infrastructure to get oil to consumers. So they need to buy the ports, the terminals, the pipelines, uh, the, the intermediate tankage, the wholesale. Before you even get a barrel to, uh, as, as gasoline to your consumer, uh, who then fills up his car before he even drives, you've, you've spent a lot of oil to get new supply lines going. And, you know, that's, that is a couple of hundred thousand uh, barrels a day if you add it all up, which we've done in, in, in mm-hmm. OMI. Uh, and if you add the, um, uh, the SBR uh, uh, aspirations to it, um, demand for crude oil will continue to rise uh, uh, quite considerably. And, and thank God for the balances. If it hadn't been for that, uh, the, the ability of this market to clear at the end of every month with the amount of oil that has been generated by the shale boom in the U.S., um, that uh, it would be a much uglier market than it is now. And, I, and my bearishness is that that really hasn't gone away. The shale is still there. There are prices at which um, we will see uh, a, a certain amount of, of the shale going away, but you know, $50 brings some of it back. That's the other thing that it becomes self-defeating. Okay, thanks, David. Well, let's let's cut to the chase here. Can you? Get, I want to I want to get some view from the two of you about how you see the oil market rebalancing process work. I mean, this is what is sort of the, the catchword uh, these days is is rebalancing. Um, and you know, we're you know, there's a difference of views of when this happens and what it looks like. Um, what do you think about this, David? Uh, I think that I think the price increases work against the rebalancing process. It it does keep some shale in business longer. It it maybe even brings some back. Certainly, the drilled uncompleted wells have started now to show up. Uh, the other interesting thing is that it the the whole uh, rebalancing effect. Um, if you look at the numbers for May, uh, the U.S. some of the the lower shale. Uh, production, uh, they went down about 70,000, 80,000 barrels a day, and the rest was Canada, 800,000. Outside of that, non-OECD, uh, non-OECD, excuse me, non-OPEC supply was actually up about 100,000 barrels a day. So it, it's not happening globally the way that I think rebalancing would require. 
then you have demand grow by 1.3 million barrels a day. So, you know, there's more, there's more room for OPEC oil. Um, <clears throat> where are we going from here? It's not going to go wild, I think. Um, but we have some good guidance. Uh, we have a consistent fear now with the market rebalancing ongoing. We have uh, good Saudi guidance saying, uh, and Saudi gui guidance is crucial in this market that has no real, you know, uh, idea of where we're going. Saudi guidance was $50 is actually too low uh, for future investments. Um, okay, so we might not go wildly beyond 50, but you know, going below 50 would mean that you increase your your supply shortages going forward. So you don't want to be on that wrong side of the of the market. So going going uh, to the end of the year, we might uh, move to you know just below 60. And David, in terms of let, let, let's close by talking a little bit about price. So you're yeah. thinking, you know, from your perspective, John. Uh, something high 50s to 60 yeah. by the end of the year. David, where do you come out? Uh, I'm in the high 30s, between 35 and 40, which is up maybe $5 from what I had thought at the beginning of the year and, and what happened last year. Um, I see part of this uh, um, rebound effect with uh, the prices going up uh, really putting a dent in the psychology. Um, and there may also be some demand scares uh, as well. Uh, the bad news out of Europe is not over. The bad news out of China is not, not over. Um, the bad news out of Venezuela, unfortunately, is also not over, which hurts a little demand and hurts supply a lot. Uh, so I think that's what we're in. But uh, I see the key question as being, as I said at the very beginning, uh, what are the Saudi Arabians going to be doing in three or four years when there is uh, given the trends in supply-demand that we're looking at, a million, two million barrel a day deficit in the market because of the very pronounced effect that the lower prices had on CapEx and on uh, the completion of, uh, not completion, but the initiation of projects in the Arctic and the deep water, et cetera. I think the Saudis are going to step in. I think the Saudis, although they don't tell us this, have made the decision that they want to produce the oil faster. They want to get as much out of the ground as they can before the market for oil goes away. Well, well, it's the black swan of, uh, of Ali Naimi. But the bears are, are not reading what uh, Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is saying. He says if the market needs the oil, we'll go to 20 million barrels a day. He has been very loud and clear about that. So the Saudis are going to step in, fill the gap, which means that the price won't you know, go to 100, uh, but it also means that it won't go to 30. Yeah, but 50 doesn't get rid of shale. Uh, 50 helps Iran. Uh, there's a number of reasons why 50 might not be where they want to be. I think 40 is the long-term price of oil that kind of ought to work for Saudi Arabia. I don't know that – I don't think that they believe that and will say that yet. Obviously, a little bit more now, more money is, is always good, but – Okay, well, I guess with that, we have to draw this to a close. Uh, and uh, I'd like to open it up now for questions from our audience. Uh, uh, thank you for your, your views. But uh, uh, could we uh, uh, get some questions from the audience, please? Absolutely. At this time, if you'd like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. You can remove yourself from the queue by pressing the pound key. Again, it's star and one if you have a question. And we'll go first to Dina Ignatovich with Toronto. Uh, sorry, from Toronto, Canada. Please go ahead. 
Hi, I was just wondering if you guys can comment on at what price you think investment will come back, both in North America. Um, you know, what what uh, price level does shale need to start investing again, as well as the oil sands, and then more globally as well? Oh, Forty dollars. I think that's a that's a, a workable price. Uh, for for new investment, um, certainly with existing facilities in the oil sands, the problem is about pipes. It's about getting this stuff out, um, getting it to you in eastern Canada, getting it to Asia, besides getting it to the U.S., uh, and there are attempts to make that work. But um, adding new tranches to the mines and adding, uh, sliding the, the, uh, the pads around on some of the in situ, the SAG-D, uh, facilities is uh, is well within that price range, and it could be that there's a lot of shale uh, that's there at forty dollars, given what's happened with the technology improvements and um, you know the idea that they have really targeted the best deposits. Now one has to be concerned uh, about the quality of what they're drilling as well as how they're drilling it. But I think there's an upside for shale, and I think it's a huge resource. Yeah, I think it has to be closer to 60, and and the reason why is, you know, obviously at 100, uh, you you could, you know, have gold-plated drilling rigs everywhere. Um, cost inflation was a key factor for for prices to go to 100. So costs have come down. Um, companies have gotten a lot smarter about and more efficient about uh, standardizing their procedures, not doing more cash agains. Uh, which means they have brought down their costs quite dramatically. But, you know, in order to offset natural declines, you still need to go uh, into quite a bit of, of difficult oil, uh, you know, uh, despite the fact that we can expect a lot more oil from, from the Mideast Gulf over time, uh, we still need to have all the oil outside of that to, uh, to maintain some kind of level. Otherwise, we're, we're going to see a supply gap. So I, I think closer to 60 is, is where the price should be. Do we have any uh, other questions? We do have a couple more. We'll go next to Anthony Venezia out of New York. New, New York, please go ahead. Uh, how you doing, guys? Um, I, I have a question. Uh, we've seen uh, companies globally uh, cut back on uh, the amount of money they're dedicating to uh, exploration uh, in the medium term. Will the oil market face a major supply gap uh, due to this underinvestment? Absolutely, um, Anthony. Thank you for the question. Uh, we've sort of touched on it a bit, um, but you know, one thing that I didn't mention with regard to the to the shale uh, in the medium term is it depends crucially on who owns uh, the shale assets and what we've seen was a uh, almost dot-com-like binge in investment with very cheap money. Money's going to get more expensive, which will slow down the economy, which will slow down oil demand. Um, and I, that's all going to happen. But once the deep pockets get in charge of those assets, I think their their cost of doing it doesn't have the debt service that other people are, are saddled with, and maybe not the land cost, which the latecomers got really saddled with. So... Uh, they're just now sort of buy, biding their time, waiting for a better buying opportunity. But I think that will take care of at least the U.S. part of things. Internationally, it's got to be OPEC, not non-OPEC, because uh, John's right about the cost structure of the new deep water and new uh, 
um, stuff, uh, certainly in the Arctic, is out past 2020. A lot of the Mexican reform benefits don't happen in the deep water Gulf of Mexico and in their waters until well after 2020 as well. And until you get to that, you, you do have the threat of a gap, and that gap needs to be filled by Middle East oil, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it, it's not surprising that, of course, the bears who see oil go to, you know, 30 uh, and a bit uh, think that there will be a supply gap. However, in my view, when you keep your oil at around 50, you will, you know, no longer see a major decline in, in uh, CapEx. You will see continued efficiencies in how capital gets deployed. Um, as I mentioned, companies have gotten a lot smarter. Uh, you see Mideast Gulf uh, being very keen to increase capacity, and we still have some of our inventories uh, to work off. So even though that, you know, as I said, might lead to some volatility, um, it will give us a, a cushion to, to just bridge the gap between uh, any supply shortage in, in the future. And, Thank you. you and, may, uh, yeah, I just wanted one last point that, uh, Anthony, you, you see the reason why the non-OPEC uh, outside of North America has sort of stayed um, uh, even uh, has to do with the fact that there were a lot of projects where the money had mostly been spent. Uh, Kashigan, uh, with its huge cost overruns and everything else, is indeed going to start up again uh, in Oct somewhere between October and the end of the year in 2017. So uh, it's the gap after the ones that have been in the pipeline for a while uh, are done that you're, you're completely absent this whole new tranche of stuff. And that, to me, is like a 2018 to maybe 2022-type uh, window where it's really going to be up to OPEC to keep uh, a major uh, price spike from occurring. And, and that's where the surprise is going to come in because then the Saudis will say, oh, by the way, we're going to add 2 million barrels a day in capacity or in output because they have the capacity. Okay, guys. Well, uh, let's move to see if there are any other questions from, uh, from our audience. We do have one more question. As a reminder, to star and one if you have a question. We'll go to Pamela Tarantinko out of League City, Texas. Please go ahead. Hi. Thank you to everyone for putting every perspective on the table. Um, two comments. I think uh, efficiency is going to be one of those stealth influencers on both supply and demand. My question, however, is about Russia. What do you feel is Russia's role over the next five years, sort of as the biggest non-OPAC uh, non potential influencer? It's huge. Um, the, you know, the shale deposits in the U.S. are small time compared to what Russia has in the Bazinoff area. Uh, but is Russia going to be able to develop that in a sensible way? Uh, right now, sanctions are restricting some of the technology that would certainly be useful to them. But if you give me a five or ten year horizon, I could very well see that being the new uh, big shale play in the world. Um, you know, Argentina is the only other operating one, and China will probably uh, take off. Uh, plus, there's still some stuff that can be done with their their current existing uh, conventional oil base uh, in the Arctic, which they have some things that we're waiting for prices. Uh, certainly on the East Coast, they're doing additional development around Sakhalin. Uh, so that Russia is a key player. The problem is, uh, like with Venezuela, uh, that um, with somebody in charge like Putin, 
uh, a bit better than Maduro, but with his own set of problems, and certainly all the geopolitical um, baggage that is associated with, with Russia, uh, that it's very difficult to make a strong uh, bullish call about their supply just yet. Yeah. <clears throat> um, being, I, 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 I lived in Russia for, uh, for a couple of years, and, and the Russians have an amazing ability to uh, continue production uh, and to produce their own new technologies that they cannot buy due to sanctions. Uh, they have a big ego, certainly uh, the current government, and they want to maintain that production. They will accommodate companies with tax breaks, with uh, investment incentives. Uh, yes, they're very much dependent upon oil income, but they will do everything to keep that industry going, uh, in part because it's one of the two big industries they have. Um, so, yes, they will, the government will continue to incentivize new investments. Russian production will stay stable or grow. Um, and don't forget the ruble devaluation uh, has, has given uh, you know, the Russians the equivalent of, of $80 plus oil uh, at, at, this, at this moment, and it's probably even higher. Um, so the, Russians, uh, the Russian uh, industry is doing quite well, is, 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 is going to move up, uh, at least stable. Um, the one factor that they have to work with is how to get the technology that they cannot import due to sanctions, and, and they will overcome that uh, through various means. I think I hear the, the bull knocking on the bear's cave door here. A lot of Russian oil, huh? Well, it's a complex picture, isn't it? Well, it's a low-cost producer, um, you know, so obviously. Okay, well, um, do we have any other questions from the floor? And there's no more questions currently. Okay. Well, I, I think we're about out of time. I have, I have one last uh, question to throw out to you guys. Um, you know, you, you sort of played out your positions and what you, how you see things. Um, what do you think the biggest wild card that could sort of upset your, your, your view is? Um, David, do you want to start with that? Uh, for me, it's Saudi Arabia. Um, like I said, we don't really know what the decision-making is. We've heard some things that sound like very plain language. We've heard things that uh, tend to uh, show a continued short-term orientation, which I had thought had changed last year with the proximity of, of the Paris talks and concerns about uh, changing the economy that are in the Vision uh, 2013. Uh, but how that plays out and whether or not this very limited constituency within the royal family um, is going to be able to uh, continue without some major difficulties. That's what my big fear is in terms of... Uh, so you're talking about the stability of Saudi Arabia? The stability of, Saudi, of the royal family and hence Saudi Arabia. Yeah, which has been predicted to collapse for like many decades. Um, I think the, the biggest factor is, is sentiment, is the equity market. Um, oil is, is tight to the hip. Uh, to the equity market, if uh, if that's going to take a big hit, uh, then oil will will um, take the hit with it. Um, it very much depends on the time frame you're looking at. Of course, I mean David is probably talking about five years, ten years. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the next half a year, year. Uh, equity markets would be macro sentiment would be the macro biggest sentiment. biggest factor. All right. Well, thank you, guys, and thank you, everyone, for listening in. And um, we will be uh, having another one of these chats in the uh, 
uh, in uh, in July, uh, and we'll be sending you out detail sending out details about that uh, as the time gets closer. Uh, thank you, everyone, and um, thank you all. That, that, that's, thank you. That, that concludes our debate. <laughs>